This is Marcel. And this is Isabel. This is the Top Rank Podcast, a podcast that's an exploratory research platform centered on individuals of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging their fields and the world around them. So today we're very, very excited to welcome Kim Jenkins, who is a scholar, researcher, lecturer, and curator of fashion studies. She has a background in cultural anthropology and art history, and she currently holds positions at Parsons and... Um, Pratt as a professor and now soon at Gucci. Um, I'll, are there any other words that you'd like to say to like further explain your bio? Or? That, that pretty much sums it up right now. Nice. So um, yeah, I just do academic and creative projects outside of that. But yeah, that sums it up right now. Nice. Cool. Well, we are big fans of Kim's work and are really, really honored to be talking to her today. So we're just going to start out by kind of honing in on what a lot of her scholarship and research is about. So um, you study the intersection of race and fashion, and we wanted to know, like, first of all, what that means to you, and also how did you become interested in it? Ooh. So um, <clears throat> I created the class Fashion and Race about three, now about three and a half years ago. Um, I was... I came out of this program called Fashion Studies at Parsons School of Design. And um, so first of all, kind of the umbrella under which I'm researching and teaching is fashion studies. And that's sort of the study of why we wear what we wear. It's thinking of fashion as both an object um, and a phenomenon. Um, Fashion being um, something that we know and see as like, you know, the spectacle of fashion, runways, trends, um, you know, just everything that goes with that. And then there's um, this idea of fashion as a practice, like fashioning your body, fashioning your identity. And so a program like that was really appealing to me um, coming out of a program in cultural anthropology and art history. uh, I was always just sort of interested in undergrad about, but what are they wearing or why are they wearing that? And the professor would just sort of think it's just this like footnote or just like not worthy of scholarly interest. It's like clothing, fashion, who cares about that? Fashion is so stigmatized and gendered and people think it's just like this superficial thing um, that isn't worth uh, thinking about intellectually. And so um, the program that I went into, it's this master's program at Parsons um, that still exists. And um, it's still kind of a nascent field, to be honest, this whole idea of fashion theory. It hasn't really become popular. It only really became kind of out on the scene about maybe 20 years ago. And um, Dr. Valerie Steele, who's a curator at the museum at FIT, she created this journal called Fashion Theory, which kind of um, really kind of broke ground in thinking about fashion in a way other than strict fashion history or just fashion design. So like fashion thinking. Um, And so um, coming out of that program, I started, I was lucky enough to get a teaching job right after graduation, which, you know, isn't, isn't that common. Um, And so once I was sort of getting my feet wet teaching classes like fashion history, fashion culture, 
um, there's this opportunity to propose a course, um, and a, an elective course. And I thought, well, huh, you know, there's this within fashion studies, um, it would be great to kind of carve out this academic space where we can also talk about the intersection of fashion and race, because I felt like that wasn't really addressed in the program or in the field, um, to be honest. And so um, the exciting and daunting thing about that was that there was a space for me to do that. Parsons allowed me to run a course, create, develop and run a course called Fashion and Race. But it was also like, oh, God, you know, where do I find the resources for this? How do I kind of think through this? And so I spent a good deal of time doing all of this research to um, from disparate fields like critical race theory, um, gender studies, African-American studies, women's studies, American studies, um, fashion studies, fashion history. Um, I was just sort of pulling from history, you know, pulling from all these different fields to build a syllabus and these resources um, to help all of this make sense and, you know, um, help it kind of turn into something. And so um, I developed a course um, which ran first in fall of 2016 at Parsons, and it was waitlisted. And students were so excited for it, which was great because it really showed that it was filling a niche, it was filling a need um, at the school for such um in this globalized world that we live in, with students coming from all these diverse cultures, students who are biracial, multinational, multiracial, um, they wanted a space to kind of talk about these things. And I was carving out that space for them. And so um, the class that has been running since 2016 has been both an educational space and a therapeutic space where um, the students feel safe enough to talk about things that they can't talk about in other classes. The class provides a space where they're able to propose final projects or assignments or, or kind of create assignments for themselves that they can't do in other classes where the professors are kind of like, oh, I don't know if you should talk about that or, oh, why do you have to make it about race? This is the class where they can do that. They can go for it. Wow, it sounds like an incredibly dynamic and amazing. Yeah, course. I wish I could take this. Yeah, class. the too. students, the students shape it as much as I do. I, it really, it's so much. Like I'll have this plan to do a lecture of like we're just going to talk about this, and then all it takes is someone to say, "Can we talk about race and hair?" And then all of a sudden, the whole class gets like wow. sidetracked. And I give them that space, though. I'm like, "Let's talk about it," because this is your one moment, or probably your one space that you can really talk about this on campus. So let's do it. So it really depends, like the students shape it just as much as I do. That's amazing. That is like the sign of an amazing professor or something. Someone yeah, that's true. flexible and also listening to the needs of their students. Believe me, I've learned the hard way what the, <laughs> what <laughs> yeah, the opposite same, no means. Shade. No shade. Um, <laughs> word. I mean, I I feel like so much of our podcast is our, our mutual kind of fascination and love for thinking about fashion critically, actually, and consumer culture. I feel like we've kind of come to terms with the fact that we are kind of like dipped, baptized, for lack of a better phrase, in this system and trying to use this podcast as a platform to 
yeah, think about how this, all these structures, how they, how they shape us and our identities and stuff that's super important to us. I mean, for you personally, like, how did you become interested in doing this work in the first place? Aside from like after graduation, starting the course, was there like a formative moment when you were younger where fashion became really important? Yeah. uh, So as a kid, I think I was always, I, I had become slowly obsessed with race for some reason. Um, I get obsessed with things. And so um, I, as a kid, I grew up in, I wouldn't even say predominantly, like all white, like whole white neighborhoods. And so my dad um, was kind of climbing this corporate ladder and we moved into these, to kind of make a point, like we we moved into these affluent white neighborhoods and, you know, yeah, it, it kind of shows that we're, we're moving on up and, you know, this is, you know, we're kind of staking our claim in this neighborhood, putting our bodies in this space. But at the same time, for me growing up as a kid, I mean, the, the memories were as vis- vivid as like yesterday, um, noticing that I was the only one in all these spaces. And psychologically, it was a little damaging. <laughs> Things that it, my self-esteem plummeted. There was a lot of self-hatred involved, noticing I, I, you know, my hair didn't look like everyone else's. My body didn't look like everyone else's. And I thought it was ugly. And I thought there was something wrong with me. And so I um, just was trying to get to the bottom of, like, difference and otherness and skin tone and the nuances of hair texture. And I would notice these things. And... um. I, you know, it's, I'm very lucky that I'm able to take these memories and reshape them and make them relevant or useful to the work that I do today. Like, um, thinking of the nuances of race, for instance, in in kind of my formative years, I'll never forget when I was little, my mom, who's deceased, my mom died when I was 14, breast cancer, but she was fair-skinned, and she had kind of naturally straight-ish hair. And um, she even kind of dealt with the struggle of, da- of of marrying or being engaged to and then marrying my dad, who was dark-skinned and had very tight, kinky hair. And families was kind of like, hmm, you know, I, I don't know about that, <laughs> you know. Mm. And I remember when I was growing up, when I was little, she told me I was really self-conscious about my skin. And I'll never forget she told me, um, don't worry, you know, I was darker when I was little and then I got lighter, and you, you'll, you'll lighten up as you get older. And I felt, I just remember the elation, wow. how happy and relieved I felt when she told me that. And I could not wait to get older and get just out of this skin. Like it was, um, like I was in this cocoon and just wow. incubating, waiting to become something beautiful. And mm. so through my teens, I kind of grappled with code switching in high school, junior high and then high school, and just trying to fit in. And um, I started um, in my late teens, the cool thing was to kind of be dropped off. I grew up in Texas, um, was to be dropped off at Barnes & Noble in my neighborhood. (laughs) And so it was like, that's okay, Dad, just leave me here a few hours. I'm going to have things to do. So um, I would get dropped (laughs) off at Barnes & Noble, and I would just like hang out in the stacks and just... I would just discover all these books. And I noticed this stack section that was like about race. And there was this book I picked up called The Color Complex. And it talked about the whole nuances of like colorism and just, I was like, 
huh. And it's just like, it's like someone turned all the lights on for me finally. Like all these things I was like wringing my hands about as a kid and as a preteen. It was some like scholar sitting here talking about it and explaining why this is. And um, I knew at that point that I wanted to kind of read more about this. And a few years later, I was uh, interested in kind of studying culture in college in in some sort of way. So I was going between sociology and anthropology. I landed on cultural anthropology. And then that helped kind of further my ideas and research. And as I was saying before, you know, in undergrad at Texas, I went to UT Arlington. I was majoring in cultural anthropology and minoring in art history. And through the classes that I would take, like culture and personality and um, just all these different uh, cultural anthropology courses and electives, um, uh, requisite courses in the electives. Um, I was um, prioritizing non-Western hist- art history classes and then trying to make sense and, and use that time to write my final papers on dress practice and identity. And so I was thankful to have professors who supported me with that. And what I didn't know was that the final, like my final projects, the research papers that I was writing in those courses were actually called fashion studies papers. But I didn't know that that field had existed yet or a program like that had existed yet. So um, it wasn't until like my final year of um, undergrad that I was in the library at UT Arlington and I stumbled upon this library stack um, where they they kind of made this section of fashion books that weren't fashion design, but they weren't fashion history. They didn't really know what to call them or classify them as. And they were fashion um, fashion studies books. And so to this day, like all the names that I read along the spines of those books um, back then, like 10 years ago, those are professors who I like work with today and talk to and see on a regular basis. And so it's crazy. And so um, I guess to getting to answer your question, it was sort of like this culmination of kind of a painful history and grappling with that and trying to make sense of that and then kind of squeezing in um, or infusing what I learned in art history and cultural anthropology and then trying to make sense of a course um, that explores these ideas. It takes a little bit of art history, a little bit of fashion history, a little bit of race studies, um, and then a little bit of my own experiences and then also inviting students to bring their own experiences to the table and so, um, yeah, I think that's what inspired a lot of it. it was just the fact that it's kind of secretly therapy for me, too, because I just had a lot of fucked up experiences in terms of race. And mm-hmm. I still do. You know, I'm not fully healed yet. You know, there's things I'm still grappling with and dealing with when it comes to race. And I mean, for better or worse, now that I'm like doing this work on fashion and race, it really gets in my head. It's at the forefront of my mind. Like it's all I see now. Um, Cause I'm just so close to the research and, and thinking about it for my class. Um, everything's about race for me. Sometimes I have to chill out. It's like, is this because you're racist? I mean, that's, yeah, <laughs> that is like the running ticker tape in the back of my mind. Yeah, I'm like, Marcel, take a step to the podium. <laughs> you sound like me. Um, wow. Yeah. I always just love to hear the origin story behind people's. And I love how also your work is so, even in the course and the scholarship, so grounded in like honoring your subjectivity and how you're using this sort of intellectual exploration to explore the person you are and also giving your students the space to do that as well. I think so much in sort of academia with a capital A, that type of making the personal, like kind of 
highlighting that as being sort of driving force to the work is often seen as, you know, not intellectual. But the fact that you're kind of doing away with all of that, I, I'm totally a fan of. So that was wonderful to hear. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. It's it's really, it's like amazing to hear an honest and personal story about why someone like does what they do professionally, which I feel like is fairly rare. Like people have their scripts, of course, but thank you. I'm all about the storytelling. I feel like at the heart of what I do is I'm kind of an unacademic academic. Um, I have managed to hang out this long in the academic space. They still keep me around, <laughs> but like... Um, I don't like density or being too verbose or like, you know, making things inaccessible or, you know, putting up a wall in any way. I feel like it's a conversation that we need to have. Um, and I believe in be in vulnerability and just sort of us exploring together and discovering information together, ex exploring knowledge together Um and just kind of bringing my authenticity to the table and hoping you bring yours. And so, yeah, I guess like the name of the game for me is accessibility. I mm -hmm. want to educate as many people as possible, which has led to work of, you know, being outside the walls of academia. Like I love teaching in the classroom, but I, I dream of just being kind of a professor to the world. I know that sounds so corny, but just like no, I love. I love that. I prefer to teach. I think I love to be where the action is. I prefer to teach people on the street and get them to know about all these things that I talk about more than like getting a kick out of going to conferences and symposia and just talking to this closed space of For people sure. and reading yeah. papers. You know, it's like I know you have to do some of that stuff um, to stay in the field, but I just really prefer talking to everyday people and talking about just kind of like educating them on these concepts. I mean, sure. that's a big impetus in this podcast, actually, because like we're both, I mean, nerds. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like trying to think of a better way to say <laughs> it, but like nerds. a lot of what we try to do with this show is to like bring amazing research going on in academic spaces and be like, hey, we want to like put this in a place that's not JSTOR where like we can have mm, a more no general paywall. like general audience conversation about whatever this is. So that's like a, so your philosophy is a perfect fit for what we're trying to do. But um, anyway, okay, so another question th that we have for you is now that we've talked a little about how you're positioning your work um, at the intersection of race and fashion, um, what role do you think that racial ideas play in how luxury and aspirational brands imagine and approach their customers today? Hmm. Today. Um, I mean, actually, it from could any be vantage point. In, in, like, at any time, but I think that this is a question, obviously, which is being asked more now than maybe it ever has been. So, I guess there's a couple of angles to start addressing this question. Um, thinking of luxury, it's interesting. So I'm kind of working backwards. There, so I went to this kind of closed event um, about a month ago that was held at Philip Lim. It was put on by the Fashion for All Foundation. And it was kind of like about um, fashion and um, it was kind of about fashion and race. It was about um, the black community and the, and the business of fashion. And um, they had guests like Emil Wilbekin and Constance White, these, these kind of veteran figures in fashion um, who were both fashion stylists, fashion writers. And um, and Solange Franklin, who's a stylist, as their guest, and um, it was moderated by Lindsay Peoples Wagner, um, who now uh, is the editor in chief at Teen Vogue. 
And so it was like a, it was a good discussion. And during the Q and A, um, a young man stood up and said, you know, and it was he was just so it was it was it was naive in the best way. You know, he stood up and you could tell he was like barely twenty one years old, I think. And he said, "I want to create a luxury brand. How can I do that?" You know, I you know I I know that there's luxury like with a capital L, but is there a way that me you know, that I can create, someone like me can create a luxury brand. What does that take? And so one of the responses was, you know, well, okay, if we're going by the textbook definition of luxury, luxury, you know, what makes luxury? Luxury, you know, as opposed to just like what we see in like fast fashion or just like accessible fashion. And so, you know, heritage, you know, some sort of legacy, you know, a house, a maison, um, and then um, materials, you know, materiality. It's got to be fine material, you know. And um, so, so I mean, like, those are a couple of things, and, and that all justifies the price point. And so, you know, it, it kind of begs this question of, like, is there a way that, you know, any of us could create luxury? You know, is luxury just sort of this concept um, that, you know, anything could be luxury to us in what we make it. Um, oh, and I guess like also time, like the time it takes to make something. So can any of us create luxury or is it only justified by, you know, sort of it, it, it takes the, it takes some sort of heritage or legacy, um, and, and some sort of sense of materiality, like have uh, harvesting or sourcing the best materials, the finest materials for all that. And the time it takes to craft something, um, and so the skill and craftsmanship known to make that. Um, I think one way we're challenging this notion is with this week, Rihanna having her own Maison Fenty at LVMH. And so LVMH is um, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, this conglomerate that owns many luxury brands. And so not since 1987 with Christian Lacroix's house has a house been created, established under LVMH, a luxury brand. And so now we've crowned Rihanna as the next um, founder, uh, creator, director of a luxury brand. And so her pieces are expensive, um, but you might have some people, you know, you have, when it comes to race, you know, I know there's already some people side-eyeing, wondering, okay, a $1,300 jacket, sorry, honey, like just because you've got this Maison now, you can't just call this third this jacket, $1,300, what does it take to make, to really qualify this as a luxury item? Um, you know, cause obviously there's no heritage or legacy yet with, with Fenty, you know, it's only been around her whole Fenty brand's been only around for, I guess, a year or so. And I mean, she's been doing other things like River Island. Um, but you know, that's one way of thinking about it. Establishing luxury, who gets to you know, come to the table and put their chips in and say, hey, you know, raise their hand. I want to I want to have a luxury brand. And this is what I call luxury. You know, so one way is how do we define luxury? And, you know, what's luxury to us? And um, another way of thinking about it is accessibility. Um, and this is definitely where race and class come in. Luxury is luxury and aspirational. And what makes it so great to many people is that it's not accessible to many people. And so um, when it comes to the physics of fashion, the way fashion works, you know, it's um, based on aspiration, but also um, 
distinction and novelty. And so as, as soon as we adopt something and it makes us feel special uh, and, and you know, we, we feel like we're the only people with this certain style or this way of wearing something or we're the only people who have, have this certain object. Um, as soon as other people adopt it, it's over to us. You know, we have to move on to some other nuance of that item. You know, we have to style it a different way or we have to discard the whole look and remove ourselves from the whole look altogether. And so this is definitely where race and class come in. And so like one example of ex the, the issues of accessibility, moving on from definition, is like um, the history of fur coats. And so when uh, there's like a great, uh, I think it was a New York Times piece you can fact check me on that. There's like a, I think it's a New York Times piece that came out a few months ago that was talking about how white women would wear fur coats. And it was this conspicuous object of luxury, of just wealth and, and taste and distinction. And as soon as black women in the United States managed to get their money up and be able to like get fur coats, because they realized, oh, you know, this is what, you know, you wear to show how distinguished you are um, and elegant and refined you are. Um, white women said it was over. You know, it was just like, okay, we need to move on from something else. We'll be damned if we're going to be having, you know, sharing the same taste level as black women. And so it was over. And um, so that's like another way, or, you know, just briefly speaking, about lux luxury when it comes to race and fashion. Um, historically speaking, also, when it comes to accessibility, by any means necessary, um, a fashion rebel we can think of is Daniel Day, also known as Dapper Dan, who um, by the early 1980s in Harlem, New York, was making a name for himself, um, snatching luxury for himself. And he was like a Pied Piper and bringing it to the people in Harlem. Um, because on Madison Avenue, they would be damned if they're going to have black people coming in there and buying all these luxury items. So Daniel Day was thinking of these ways of making, you know, just kind of uh, grabbing these luxury brands and logos um, like Louis Vuitton and Gucci. And he would kind of create, he would make these creations. Um, uh, he, he was a couturier, really. He would just make these bespoke pieces using and blazoning emblazoning these pieces with these logos and you know his clients were um, gangsters at the time who could who could afford it um the easiest at that time and then it was like rappers and athletes after that and so they were all wearing these these dapper dan pieces um having their cars outfitted in all these logos and so they were just showing you know their their luxury their taste level and, and getting luxury by any means necessary. And um, it was illicit. And Sonia Sotomayor shut, his, shut him down, shut his atelier down. And um, for, you know, trademark infringement, they were like, you, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't just, like, make these pieces, uh, you know. Um, these brands are very upset with you right now. And so, um, but it was like bringing luxury to the people. Um didn't she tell him like mm. when 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 they were busted? She like actually really liked this like Big Daddy Kane coat that she was, <laughs> was making. Like, she was like, "This guy should be downtown." I I freaking yeah, love that story. Like, He's kind of brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> but it's so crazy. So like now it's come full circle where Gucci ended up 
I guess over a year ago now, a year and a half ago, they sent this piece down the runway that was like actually a piece, you know, that it was almost like this is complete iteration of um, what Dapper Dan had created in the 80s. Um, And it was, you know, for, for whatever reason, it was just due to the lack of knowledge. And so social media... Um, came in and let them know, like, hey, this is actually a piece that Dapper Dan made. Do you know who Dapper Dan is? And so, long story short, that created this relationship or partnership between Gucci and Dapper Dan. And so um, they've since created, um, helped him establish, or reestablish, rather, um, an atelier for him in Harlem. And he's got the space that he deserves now, Um it's a beautiful space. I actually just went to see it this week. And um, I mean, it, it, it's beautiful. And just getting to see him on a semi-regular basis, it's just really an honor. Um, but these are just some of the ways that we can see luxury and this kind of tug of war happen of just um, how we see you know, luxury is aspirational, something to kind of go after but yet, you know, um, whether it's um, reasons based on class or race, um, we see the rules change up, you know, when it comes to what's luxurious and what's accessible. And if you don't want a certain group of people wearing your stuff or being able to access this and you want this or that and you want to remain special or distinct, um, you change it up. You change up the rules. And... It could be something like, oh, well, for the sake of sustainability, we don't wear this anymore. Or for the sake of, um, you know, I, I don't know, it, this isn't stylish anymore. That You know, um, or we don't do that anymore. Um, and so it, it's just kind of this way to remain distinct. Um, so it, there's a great deal of elitism at play in all of that. Right. These like coded words and mm. phrases to, yeah, get at what they really mean. I mean... Wow, that was super fascinating. And I've, you know, in preparation for our chat today, I was reading a lot of the things that you've like written and just kind of like ruminating on this stuff for my for myself because I too also like share an interest in like anthropology, race, the study of like difference. I'm too always very skeptical of people and trying to understand why the world is the way it is. And when it comes to studying race, I I, I get this sense that oftentimes like whiteness and like white culture as a phenomenon gets um, erased is definitely not the right word, but like renormalized in a way that kind of like may or may not reinforce the idea of like otherness or difference. So I was wondering, what do you mean? Um, I just mean when, when people are talking about theorizing race discussions of whiteness or white culture as mm. a specific racialized identity aren't discussed because I feel like it's just a function of how like whiteness, a certain type of cultural expression of whiteness is considered normal or like, like the average the default. standard, the yeah. default. So we don't have to like kind of pick it apart. It's the center. Exactly. The invisible center. Whiteness is the invisible center. So I wonder with, with all that preamble, with respect to the study of race and fashion, how are are you thinking about perhaps like how ideas about whiteness or white culture are like 
express through fashion. Like I was walking through Target a few days ago and I noticed that Vineyard Vines has like a, they've become like massified. I mean, I don't really know the, the history of Vineyard Vines, but wow. to me, that's like a white culture brand, <laughs> like a, like a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant as, yeah, as a very specific racialized identity. So yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on I'm, whiteness and fashion. I'm fa- I actually want to read more and more about it. So one thing I love about teaching fashion and race is it g- gives me an excuse, especially during the summertime, like right now, to like get books. I just got a bunch of books at um, my local bookstore in Fort Greene on race because that's how I just love to spend some time, um, just getting books on race. Um, I've been really fascinated with whiteness for a couple of decades. Actually, well, I mean, since I was like in my early teens, um, I wrote uh, my first fashion studies paper in eighth grade um, about skinheads and the nuances of like how regimented their style is and what they wear and stuff like that. And um, I mean, because whiteness and white culture, it's it's so broad, but um, and class, you know, so stratified. But I do have a fascination with that. And oh gosh, it's like where do we start? Um, Again, your question, it's like, how is, how do we see, how do you see like, like whiteness in like part in, of fashion, cultural production, even maybe fashion mm, studies? Like, how do we, how does that, yeah. Various levels. Like, um, I mean, yeah, first, like where you started with like different fashion items, um, starting with the designer and their heritage and maybe who their targeted audience is, who their targeted wearer is, um, and they communicate that through their muse or the models that they use um, for their collections oftentimes and kind of their coterie of um, patrons, um, the women or men who wear their stuff. Um, they kind of communicate what their community or their tribe looks like and or they want it to look like. Um, and, you know, also if we're talking about luxury fashion – their price points will kind of, quote-unquote, hopefully, you know, also filter out people um, of various ethnic- ethnicities, races, or classes. Um, so it just kind of reaches their target community or audience or consumer. Also, in terms of um, beauty standards, um, pervasive beauty standards that we see, um, whiteness comes through... Um, Again, through the models that they use, the consumers, uh, I'm sorry, not the, um, the muses and the patrons that they keep around and, and just kind of publicizing this, the products that they put out, um, this is in fa- fashion or beauty, you know, the sizing or the way the clothes are made, you know, are they made for, you know, kind of voluptuous bodies that are typically raced? Um, and so not to say all full-figured bodies are always like... Um, um, like having butt and hips is exclusively black or Latina yeah. or anything. Um, but oftentimes it is. And so, you know, the way you structure your, construct your clothing or your silhouette, that'll also filter out some groups of people. Um, the makeup, if you're, if you go into like, um, uh, having also a, a makeup line, um, that's also going to filter out some people. You kind of make it loud and clear when it's 27 shades of white, you know? So Porcelain, porcelain. Yeah, and porcelain and ivory and <laughs> alabaster. And so it's like, where am I in all this? So um, those various things and, and placement, um, where you placed your, your store, your boutique, 
um, also kind of helps filter out people. Um, I mean, people will travel to it. I mean, that just makes it all the more aspirational and exciting, you know, for uh, certain groups of people. That's how luxury works. But um, but then you've got like kind of the gatekeeping if you are black or brown going into these retail stores. There's the gatekeeping of, you know, we're going to follow your ass around here. <laughs> you know, right. can you we're afford make it to be in here? Uncomfortable as possible. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just all these hurdles or, you know, these hoops of fire <laughs> that people have to jump through just to feel accepted um, or embraced or catered to in fashion. And that said, you also have um, groups of people uh, of color who are kind of like, you know, to hell with all this. Like, we don't need to be validated by any of you. We don't need to qualify for anything. We'll make our own makeup line or we'll make our own fashion line or we'll we'll create our own businesses. We don't need to be accepted by you. So, um, so I mean, for many people for years, they've seen whiteness um, be the standard for, you know, much of the fashion industry, which is why they want nothing to do with it. And they just kind of want to create their own spaces. So, um, so yeah, and what's interesting and what we're seeing now is these um, historically very white um, in terms of the internal organization of these companies and their patrons, their muses, their models, and a lot of their consumer base in this increasingly globalized world, these fashion brands now are realizing, huh, you know, as this world is becoming increasingly brown-ish um, or beige or <laughs> anything like that, um, they're realizing, okay, we really need to get on the right side of history now. We need to kind of cater to these people. It's, you know, we, you know, it's it's not doing us any favors to be so elitist or just have like white on white on white models all the time and... Um, and to be just uneducated about these things. So um, so we're also, I mean, we're kind of seeing some whiteness falling away or white supremacy falling away in some ways, for better or for worse. And I say that meaning you have some companies genuinely trying to be on the right side of history and cater to a, an increasingly blo- globalized and diverse community. But then you also have some brands who are just like following the dollar and just trying to like, get on the wokeness bandwagon and just, you know, have these ad campaigns with like black and brown people all over the place smiling and just, you know, showing how into diversity they are. Um, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's yeah. That. that was a really fascinating. It's like Benetton answer. 2.0. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Inclusivity incorporated. It's interesting to think that like prior to maybe a couple decades ago or even less that like none of these like Maison type luxury brands probably ever considered having consumers who weren't white. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like just adjusting. I mean, I've always been fascinated by like luxury brands that have been reclaimed like in Dapper Dan style by groups who they weren't ostensibly intended for like Polo or North Face, you know, like all these things and then how they've tried to kind of like turn around and make that work for them in, in retrospect, like, that kind of stuff is extremely interesting and I think is also a part of like how this is has unwound over the past 30 years. But well, any, and so, yeah. And, and some some brands brace it and some don't. Yeah. Some brands still, like even recently, you know, I'm not gonna name any names, but are still kind of like, I don't want those people wearing our clothes. Yeah. I don't I I you know, I don't want them to be our ambassadors. I don't want us to turn into that kind of brand. 
you know, we need to change up the rules. You know, we need to yeah. either bring up the price point or make it loud and clear with our models that, you know, this is not who we're trying to attract. Or we need to, like, limit the distribution or accessibility of these certain items. So, mm, yeah, it's so still happening. Pronged, like, so it's, wow. like, intentional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, seemingly endless controversies lately on both sides, like brands who are trying to not jump on this and brands who are jumping on it and maybe doing not a great job. Um, but, I mean, just to give an example, like to discuss your your recent work, like Gucci under fire for a variety of reasons, knocking off the Dapper Dan designs, as you mentioned, um, the, um, the kind of like balaclava-esque blackface sweater. These kinds of errors, which obviously aren't exclusive to Gucci and have been and with social media, just come up and get called out and discussed mm-hmm. like in a public forum in a way that obviously wasn't unprecedented even like five or ten years ago. What do you think it is about like the structure and the culture of these luxury houses that fosters and allows the creation of these kinds of goods and like these mistakes? Mm. I um and I've said this to everyone. Everyone and anyone who's asked me this question, it's just a lack of education. Um, some people insist it's this malicious intent, you know, for kind of publicity, like any publicity is good publicity. Um, you know, we could agree to disagree. I honestly, I don't think that it is, there is any malicious intent. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet Alessandro Michele, the designer of Gucci, uh, a few times. And... He's incredibly warm and incredibly artistic. Um, And as an artist, he sees beauty in everything. Um, And he's so curious. And he has his own past of being bullied. And he's been through some stuff on his own. And so I think he was incredibly hurt when, you know, all this stuff happened And, you know, because he thought, well, the last person that this would be coming from is me. But at the same time, um, I think for Gucci and any other brand, on the creative team level, it was just a lack of education and lack of knowledge. And where that comes from, though, is, you know, maybe not having a diverse enough team. You know, these people are in Italy, you know, in these closed in warm kind of bubble spaces where, yeah, it is globalized. And there's, you know, um, people from other countries all living there now. Um, But still, you know, you'd be amazed how many how much iconography sometimes that we'd find is problematic is just sort of like commonplace maybe blackface images that people grew up with who didn't realize, oh my God, I didn't know that was triggering to a whole gr- different group of people. Um, being in these spaces where you're not exposed to all the nuances of racism in some ways, if you stay in these isolated communities, um, yeah, this is going to happen. Or if you have a company um, that is primarily Italian or European and where there's not a lot of... Um, diversity uh, at the executive level or within your creative teams, this is going to happen. And, um, and that, you know, that goes for Gucci or any other brand. Um, if you just, I mean, this is what happens when you don't have a diverse team and, and they're not educated on this. And so I was just so thrilled when, surprised and thrilled, when Marco Bizzari, the CEO and president, 
um, created this role for me of just bringing me on board. He really liked my trajectory, uh, career trajectory of being an educator exclusively speaking about and exploring and speaking about fashion and race at Parsons and just kind of set me up for the challenge of like, well, come on, you know, um, you know, if we need to be educated, let's do this, you know, help us. And really Gucci, and I'm honestly, I'm not trying to sound like a big PR machine for Gucci. I've seen like how Prada was kind of responding and having kind of a diversity council. Like they had Ava a black DuVernay. face moment too. Yeah, the monkey keychain. So they had like Ava DuVernay and the- Theaster Gates come in, which is okay. But I mean, I-, I still wasn't satisfied. I thought, you know, when are brands going to bring in an actual educator who does this work like on fashion and history and theory and fashion and race? And so I was like really happy that Gucci picked, you know, little me, you know, from Parsons, you know, with this like humble fashion and race class to to speak to their executives and to their designers. And so I'm so happy that I get to work closely with them and get to know Alessandro and work on educating their team. That's like a professor dream come true. You know, being able to take these things that I talk about and that I thought I would only be able to talk about in the classroom in this closed-in space and actually get to build a bridge from academia into the business of fashion and help alongside of Gucci create tangible change. Like, you know, this is what happens when you implement concepts and ideas and knowledge, history from the classroom and bring it into a luxury brand. Let's see what can happen there. Um, and if this can kind of help... Um, prevent, you know, any of these missteps from happening. You know, when you have knowledge, like what what does that make possible? How does this bro- broaden the scope of their vision? I think they're very innovative and visionary as it is. And so they're interested, you know, they just, they have the humility to just say, we could learn more, we could do better, you know. And so they'll bring in anyone it takes to do that. Um, engaging, um you know, people who were offended by the turban. They're like, come on, you know, let's talk about it then. What, what do we need? To, you know, we messed up. How can we make this better? So um, so it, it's just really great, you know, and I, I just have a whole new respect for them. And to be honest, you know, as a professor, because we're not known for making tons of money, I, until I met them, I never thought I would be involved in the luxury fashion industry. I thought it was so elitist and it was just like, oh, luxury fashion, that's a whole other planet. I'm never going to experience that. They're never going to know me. I'm never going to know them. The only time I'll talk about Gucci is like in a fashion history class. I never thought that we would, never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that I would be working one-on-one with them. I just thought it was a whole other world that was very exclusive and snobby and all this stuff. But getting to be in that world... It's still expensive, <laughs> but <laughs> that hasn't um, changed. But it's it's kind of like in some ways, in terms of the fantasy and materiality, the production of how you know how they produce things in terms of imagery and runway presentations and the things that they value. I kind of see now where luxury comes from, why people love luxury so much. It's how you makes you feel. Um, it's an experience. Um, that's what you're investing your money in if it's luxury done right. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it's, so it, it's, this has been my experience so far. These that's, are, these, wow. these are my words so far about 
my experience and um, being able to work with Gucci. But it's it's thrilling because, you know, it, it it's a luxury brand really just wanting to do better and wanting to be become more knowledgeable and kind of make the change that we want to see. Um, so... Wow. Yeah. I mean, how is your position like structured? Like, are you giving like, what kinds of lectures are you giving to them? Like, is it like a weekly thing? Like, how does it all come together? Like your knowledge? I can't speak about it too much. Um, I can just speak generally. It's just sort of like, you know, it's definitely one-on-one work with them. It's, it's all internal. So again, unfortunately I can't talk to, you know, in detail about it, but um, it's, it's definitely throughout their company in um, the work that we're doing. And it's just started a couple months ago. So um, so, we're, so we're just seeing how it goes and exploring what this looks like. So that's exciting too, is, you know, what does this role look like? What does this role make possible? For it, sure. It, it's really cool that you are getting to work in an industry that you study. I feel like that's so unusual, like in academia in general. I mean, even like Marcel studies advertising and it's like, and she has also had experience kind of like being on the ground, but usually as a scholar, you're always like looking in obviously like from the outside, but I've built all this from scratch and I just really got really lucky with being able to survive doing it. I mean, it's not just luck. It's also you. Uh, (laughs) Clearly you're doing an amazing job, but um, I mean, do you have any, what are your goals? Like, for this experience or I mean obviously like as you were saying before you're not sure like how long it'll go on necessarily or like mm-hmm. it'll unfold in probably ways that are unexpected but like what are you trying to to achieve it's it's interesting you ask because I thought um and I was just telling a, a couple of people this this week you know I thought my ambitions when I first joined when I first got accepted into the fashion studies program I was just like really wide-eyed excited to move to New York in 2011 and I was like I want to become like the Anthony Bourdain of fashion. I'm going to have my own TV show and I'm going to have a podcast that explores why we wear what we wear. I still want that. And I just thought I'm just going to be a professor to the people. I didn't know what that looked like. But my dream before that actually was either to become a professor or a curator. And I really thought after I graduated from the program, for many of us in the field, like we only thought there were only kind of a few pathways you could really do. I mean, there is consulting work, like what I'm starting to do now, but like you either like chase a tenure track professor job, that's that's the thing, or um, you become a professor, or maybe you can become a writer or something, you know, and make a living off of that. But um, I kind of did, honestly, up until like last year, I felt like I was seeing a ceiling to my work. And I just thought... Through this whole academic hustle, I honestly thought, I was like, this is it. I think I've gotten as far as I'm going to get. Oh, no. I think I may have, following this whole dream, I think this might be it. And I'm going to be forever living with a roommate. And I'm just going to, like, this this is it. And I was really trying to be noticed by the fashion industry. And... It it just sort of, um, I just started giving up, honestly. I curated my first exhibition last fall, which was exciting. That was another dream come true. It was an exhibition called Fashion and Race, Reconstructing Ideas, Reconstructing Identities. And I did that, and that was another check off my list. 
But I just thought, I, I think this is it. You know, becoming a curator is so competitive, like an actual curator in a museum or institution. It's like an editor-in-chief of a magazine. They have to die out of the position. They're, you know, and then there's every time the position opens secretly, there's someone else already kind of in the running for it. Don't think I'll ever become a, you know, a full-time professor. So I think this is it. So then in February, when the Gucci thing happened, it was like a miraculous experience. It it was sort of like... um kind of like this dream sequence where you're just like walking and all of a sudden you just like push through this door and then all of a sudden this like whole new wonderland that you didn't know existed <laughs> happened and you're just like what is this and so it was just I guess in my attempt to answer your question it was just this whole other pathway that I didn't know was possible and now I'm seeing what else I can do with this work and it hopefully can lead to consulting with other companies or brands, you know, anyone else who wants to do this. I could create my own consultancy now and really create a space, which I get most excited about, for all these other grad students of color, these new graduates who need jobs, like, come with me, you know, let's build our own space so we can kind of have like this firm where we help people with fashion and race um, who are also interested in that. And they're just kind of wondering, how can I make a living doing this? Um, so. Yeah. I kind of got lost in my own response. I hope that answered. No, no, no. <laughs> That's an amazing answer. I mean, that would like completely, I feel like it, it would completely change the industry to have something like that. Like, I hope it as, spreads. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I know that there's limits on like what you can talk about, but I mean, I'm curious, you're now like kind of in-house in one of these major institutions. Like perhaps like what sorts of challenges or limitations do you imagine kind of structuring the, the work that you could achieve at this company? Hmm. Again, with the company that I'm working with, I mean, they're just so open and, you know, receptive to knowledge, um, really excited about, you know, expanding their ways of thinking, um, becoming the most culturally aware and sensitive brand they can be and noticing when they make missteps, okay, you know, how do we need to pivot? What do we need to do better? Um, so it's pretty open, but, hmm, limitations. I don't know yet. I guess you'll see in time. We'll do I a follow-up episode. <laughs> like, hopefully not, not many, you know, because when it comes to knowledge, I mean, there's a the truth that can be uncomfortable, you know, but. Um, That's your role there is yeah. to make them uncomfortable. Maybe. Mm. I mean, in Hopefully a way, not yeah. Not like in a way, the stage the stage is set like really well for you because they reached a a point on their own and realizing they need help. Like mm -hmm. it's not like you're just getting like plopped in for people who don't necessarily want to hear something, mm -hmm. which I feel like is what it's often like trying to share these kinds of messages in industries that are just not really there. So hopefully, like that that sense of openness will continue. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, we, we were talking about a little bit before this whole, and you and you were mentioning this whole, like, sort of diversity and inclusion trend that, I mean, I've been, I, I've observed, you, you said, you mentioned in, like, the ads, like, um, and I've noticed that, too, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if we could close in getting your, more of your thoughts on that, um, especially in relationship to, I guess, fashion more broadly, we're seeing this sort of marketing of, in, of, of inclusivity and representation and diversity becoming Body positivity. Exactly. This, this kind of commodification <laughs> of, 
of the self in a new way. Um, and I was wondering if, if you could speak about that trend in relationship to um, an industry, ultimately a fashion that relies heavily on exploitation in a variety of ways, mm -hmm. whether it be of women of color in this country or across the developing world as part and parcel to the longstanding legacy of colonialism. I was wondering how you could speak to those tensions. Yeah. Hmm. The business of fashion, you know, just the profitability of difference now you know that's like the biggest market is oppression struggle of just you know um really kind of um yeah again commodifying otherness and just sort of I mean like one thing on my way here to the studio I was with my my friend and colleague my academic partner Jonathan Square who talks about fashion and slavery uh he's a historian and we were passing, like, all this pride stuff, you know, and just, like, how, like, year by year, pride has become so commodified. And every store, brand, you know, on the street, you know, brands that weren't that into it are like, oh, I don't know if we want to cover all of our storefronts with, like, with rainbow flags. Now they're, like, all into it. And I was thinking about that and just how, like, all these Instagram ads and um, people I follow on Instagram, how they're just getting these deals or partnerships with major brands just because of their, you know, because they're, they're gay. You know, it's just like, you're gay. We want to spotlight your gayness. Like, let's commodify your gayness. And so we, you know, or your blackness and, oh, you love your natural hair? You know, let's make a, a product around that. And so, I mean, in some ways I kind of side-eye it because I, I think if we look under the hood of these brands, you know, how diverse is their executive team? Again, it all comes down to the, like, who's in power in these brands and, you know, are they really just marketing on this, you know, just to kind of get new consumers? You know, how are they doing this in earnest? You know, do you really have a diverse um, organization and a diverse company? Um, but then I also don't want to like get too, I don't want to give too much power sometimes to the brands because then I see like these people these people I follow on Instagram um, who um, are getting that money, you know, and I'm just sort of like, Simply you know what? what, it's just like that H&M ad, get your money, get that H&M check, you know, which is like, you know, I could side eye them, you know, because some people think, you know, people, some people are sucking their teeth and thinking, why are you, why, why, why would you do that? Why would you do that ad with them? But, you know, I also want to give power to these people of just like get that money, you know, if if that, you know, whatever you need to do, um, get that sponsorship or get that paid partnership, um, you know, power to them. So um, it's kind of complicated how I think it. I mean, a lot of it, you know, the fashion industry is always coming under fire and these and and these luxury brands are always coming under fire because we don't really have a trust of them you know the fashion industry you know the everyday person knows like you know a lot of times that they they can't be trusted they're always just trying to make money or commodify something someone um so so we kind of give them a side eye but um at the same time you know kudos to some of these people though who are getting these partnerships with them and just like getting that check and um, hopefully using it to empower their communities uh, or themselves, you know, in some sort of way and creating um, increasing diversity and representation. But I also say that in the same breath of like, 
you know, the, these brands, you know, I I want to see like systemic change. I want to see, you know, your brands actually being diverse. And, you know, how long, you know, is this just a moment that's happening or, you know, how long are you going to keep up this whole sort of diversity campaign? You know, um, how much do you love diversity? Yeah, so. I, I feel like we're all waiting for like the other shoe to drop on that. Like, is this real? But also, I mean, we were talking in the beginning about how a lot of your class is centered around representation. And like something I've been thinking about a lot and Marcel and I have been talking about a lot is like there's the diversity on like the C-suite level or on the internal level of people working at these companies who already exist in some area of like geopolitical privilege. But then like also what about the fact that so much labor is, of course, like women of color in in the developing world mm-hmm. who are in a way like modern day slaves and who are experiencing like our current version of colonialism, like with these clothes being made by those people, then like what can like what can d- diversity in an ad really even do? You know, I feel like that's the thing that I think about the most and that I and that I harbor a ton of guilt about when I buy clothes or like when I get excited about a brand making kind of consumer facing visibility changes, but then I'm still asking, like, where does this stuff come from? So I'm wondering, like, is that something that how do you address that in your class? Or like, how do you think of like, do you think about that as being another frontier that might be something else that can change now that this conversation is is getting going? We talk about it in some ways, like, well, so like another class that I just had this semester, the spring semester um, from January to May of 2019 um, was a class that I did with Jonathan. Um, and so he brought his expertise on fashion and slavery. I brought my expertise on fashion and race. And together we created a graduate level course at Parsons called um, Fashion and Justice. So we talk about fashion and justice in all these different aspects, like just like a fashion and race, you know, fashion and hair, fashion and modeling, um, aesthetic labor, and like the actual labor production of clothing. Um, so we talk about all those things in class. Um, so that's one way of addressing it with students, but that's not enough. It's just in this classroom. Like, how is this creating, like, change on the street, um, which I'm most concerned about? And so I feel like that comes into, and I know some of my colleagues are going to quickly correct me, but I know, so that comes to us as consumers kind of voting with our dollars, like how we shop. And I know, and so when I say that, like a lot of uh, colleagues will probably say, it's not just about like putting the onus on the consumer to shop better. These companies need to be held accountable. And so that's what I want to reiterate next is these companies need to be held accountable for what they're doing. Um, And, you know, how they're running their businesses. There needs to be increased transparency. How do we address that? Um, And, for me personally, and this, I, not everyone can kind of replicate this kind of lifestyle, but I'm actually, as, as much work as I do in fashion, I'm a terrible fashion consumer. I actually just wear vintage and secondhand and student work. And the only new clothes or, or garments, I guess, things that I buy are sneakers, um, shoes are all new, underwear, and athletic wear. And that's it, you know, um, tights, socks and stuff like that. Um, I just love um, kind of contributing to the circular economy and just buying things that have already been worn. I for various reasons, um, vintage I wear because it was just made better in, in the era that it was made. Clothes were just made better at a better time. And the materials, um, like if you're checking the label of clothes like food, 
You know, there's just like less ingredients in older clothing. Like this is 100% cotton. Or this is 100% wool. Um, instead of like, you know, a bunch of Franken fibers, you know, in your stuff today. Viscose. Uh, yeah, or polyester. <laughs> but oh, polyester has been made for decades. But um, I, so I love that. And just the distinction of wearing secondhand or vintage clothing. Um, but I know that that also isn't the most realistic way to just tell people to shop. Um, because also, I, I mentioned this in my fashion and race and fashion and justice classes, you know, when you think about it from a global perspective, and especially thinking about like a circular economy in some ways, um, in some cultures, wearing secondhand clothing, that's seen as very vulgar or disgusting or repulsive. You know, the idea of like in some Asian countries, you know, the idea of wearing something from someone else's body, you know, it's like, why would you do that? Or why would you wear old clothing or something that someone else wore? Why would you do that? So, um, so, so it, it's all, it, it's something we need to think about in how can we be a better consumer and also how can we instigate change within these companies, these corporations who are making these clothes um, on a mass scale to where they're having the production done overseas and where the middleman, the person who's running these fa factories for them is, you know, just there's these persistent oppressive practices going on where people can't go to the bathroom for 14 hours or people are 14 years old working on the labor floor or getting raped on a regular basis, you know, and there's no accountability. You know, we've got to do something about that too um, and that comes down to education and more transparency and, you know, um, activist organizations um, uh, like my comrades here in the in kind of the outer margins of the fashion industry, my friends who work in sustainability and garment um, labor practices, they're trying to get the word out um, through social media and just letting people know, you know, who makes your clothes, you know, it's a hashtag, you know, or do you really know what goes into these things? Do you want to continue giving your dollar to these uh, companies? And I know this is like the longest answer ever, but it's just like, but it's also complicated too, because I was just talking about this with someone this morning. It, it, it's just, it, it's, um, it gets really complicated because then we also have to realize that um, shopping better, quote unquote, can also become really classed. And there's like this finger wagging, um, from these, you know, people who do better and shop better um, to people who can only afford to shop at H&M or can only afford to shop at, you know, TJ Maxx and Forever 21 and stuff. And so telling them, you know, do you know how your clothes are made? Or, oh, you're so proud of that $40 outfit, but do you know, you know, how oppressed that is? You know, it, it's just... Mm. It's like another luxury, like... <laughs> status almost it's to really have layers of capitalism layers yeah. of capitalism and oppression and so you got black and brown people also wearing things worn that oppress other black and brown people so how do we tease that out and undo that when you've got some people saying this is all i can afford you know if i've got you know 50 dollars for the whole month to spend on clothes hi i'm not gonna go like my top concern priority is not wearing the most ethically made or organic cotton ensemble you know i'm not gonna be you're, they're not gonna be running to eileen fisher you know to get a whole yeah. ensemble so yeah um i was actually thinking about that at the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about luxury you know that is the new luxury now sustainable clothing of wow. just um the the pleasure the distinction of wearing something now that was ethically sustainably made 
And so, again, we just start this whole new cycle of inaccessibility, you know, of these things being made. And so then there's these moral judgments towards people, you know, who are of lower class of, you know, um, not, you know, not knowing how to shop and being part of the problem, you know, on top of the oppression that they're already dealing with. Yeah. I'm really glad. You, yeah, that's yeah, a really great point. There's a, there's an, a really great article in um, Jacobin about this by by Minha. Oh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Minha Tham. Yeah. Um, she teaches that, at Pars. At, she, at she's Pratt, at Pratt. Right? Okay. She talks yeah, about she, this a lot. Exactly. And she talks about that exact thing of how, like, it's not, it's not enough to just shame people for the strata of consumption that they're actually like able to participate in when we're all of course being pressured to consume in the first place so right right she was actually who i was thinking of when i was responding because it's just like you know she's really tired of the onus being on the consumer it's like no i don't think the priority should be about shop better you know that like no we need to like put our heels on the necks of these companies of just like they need to do better, you mm-hmm. know, and all of this is capitalism. And so it's just like, stop, you know, telling us that, you know, that we need to do, you know, all of the heavy lifting of making this right. Yeah. Wow. The never ending freaking contradictions of capital keeps <laughs> yeah. me up at night. Um, wow. I feel like this conversation has been so rich and I feel like yeah. you also have so many cool things on the horizon and we wanted to make, space for you if you if you feel inspired to share like what's up next for you any upcoming projects we should look out for and then how people could keep up to date with what you're doing so um my work this summer is working um so i'll be doing education work with um gucci and also um i will be um also doing an exciting partnership with the abrams art center um, with Ali Rosa Salas. And <laughs> I don't know, a great I don't, person. I don't know if you know who that is. <laughs> and, um, so I'll be doing um, work on an exhibition that'll come out in February of 2020 um, that is, um, what I can say right now is it's exploring um, these kind of hit, previously hidden photographs that we discovered along the Lower East Side uh, in the black and brown communities of fashion being expressed through these um, kind of hidden photographs in a shoe shop, an unexpected place. So we're going to talk about that. And so so I'm excited for that. Again, that's going to come out in February 2020 uh, around the Lower East Side. And then um, doing some more teaching this fall semester, um, my day job. And then um, continuing work on... Um, on, um, I have a digital humanities site, fashionandrace.com, which I'm actually going to change to fashionandrace.org. It's just a website of, um, it's kind of like a holding space for all information I find on fashion and race that I just want to be open source, like for the public. I also, love it. I, I visited it. It's amazing. Thank you for like providing to, that service. Seriously. It's like, I, I need to build more on it. I kind of shelved it with the chaos of this semester, but I need to work on it again this summer. And then the exhibition that I had, Fashion and Race, that was at the um, Sheila and Arnold Aronson Gallery at Parsons last fall, now is going to be accessible to everyone in partnership with Google Arts and Culture. So we're making a digital version of it. So stay tuned. That'll be out this summer. Um, And I'm working on a book proposal. And I think think that's it. 
I think there's more things, but there's, there's always like more <laughs> and like lot. micro projects that I'm doing. And then you can follow me. My website is Kimberly M. Uh, Jenkins.com. And then um, my, my uh, handle and on Instagram is Kimberly M. Jenkins. So um, I just post all my work there. So, um, so yeah, you can just follow me there. Wow, this wow. has been such a treat. Thank you. This, this was amazing. This is also like our pet, like one of our pet topics that we always talk about between us. So always. to actually get to do it with you is truly like a dream. <gasps> there's just like so much more we could talk about. So many. Yeah, well, maybe there's a part two yeah, down the line. Two. Thank you so much, Kim Jenkins, Thank scholar, yeah. researcher, curator, and now new in house scholar to <laughs> Gucci and hopefully many more brands. Uh, you're listening to the Top Rain Podcast. This is Marcel. This is Isabel. And we're also here at Red Bull with Hassan. Thank you, Hassan. The MVP. Yeah, thank you to all our listeners. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>